Have you ever been assigned a patient that winds up being not so cut and dry? Like those patients in acute care or the nursing home who have dysphagia but struggle to complete exercises or compensatory strategies because of their intellectual or developmental disability. Or the patient with respiratory failure who develops respiratory-driven cardiac arrest, gets intubated for 10 plus days, and is on a trach and vent. Oh, and he also has a history of stroke, congestive heart failure, COPD, diabetes, and traumatic brain injury. No textbook or single webinar could ever prepare you for that. But we have something that can help you get there, and it's totally free. On May 19th, the MedSLP Collective is hosting another never-been-done-before virtual summit titled Advanced Therapy for Complex Patients, a Medical SLP's Guide. Learn critical concepts with actionable steps you can take for those not-so-cut-and-dry cases. You can earn up to 0.8 advanced ASHA CEUs if you are or you become a member of the MedSLP Collective, and the recording is also available inside of the Collective. Ready to scale your clinical skills? Go to medslpcollective.com forward slash summit to register today. On this episode of the Swallow Your Pride podcast, we have Rachel Hadeberg-Walt. She received her undergraduate and master's degrees from the University of Kentucky and has practiced as a speech pathologist for 15 years, primarily in acute care and mobile tea settings. Rachel is also an integrative health coach, Reiki master, and meditation teacher. She has always valued a whole patient approach to care and now uses her additional trainings and experiences to help aid in outcomes for clinicians, patients, and any other person looking to improve their well-being. Welcome to the Swallow Your Pride podcast. I'm your host, Teresa Richard. I'm a board-certified specialist in swallowing and swallowing disorders and founder of the MetaSLP Collective and MetaSLP Education. This podcast is dedicated to delivering the latest evidence-based practice to medical SLPs everywhere, while also recognizing that medical SLPs everywhere are doing the best with what they've got. Whether you are a new clinician seeking tangible tools for therapy or a seasoned vet stuck in a rut, my goal is simple, to help you advance your practice without feeling overwhelmed or underappreciated. This means that together we'll build confidence, broaden your knowledge, and reignite your passion for our field. So if you're listening, I encourage you to swallow your pride and be open to new ideas because at the end of the day, you and your patients deserve that kind of support. With that, let's dive in. Just a quick disclaimer that all statements and opinions expressed in this episode do not reflect on the organizations associated with the speakers and are their own opinions solely. Good morning, Rachel. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Oh, thank you so much for joining me. And I'm about 27 levels lower of frantic energy than I was about one minute ago because Rachel took me through some breathing exercises, which I think we both needed after frantic child drop off this morning. So if I'm not like my crazy spastic self, that's why everybody. So anyways, (laughs) thank you, Rachel. I really appreciated that. I really needed that. You are so welcome. I'm so grateful to be here and with you sharing your audience with me and talking all about this kind of art meets the science part of speech pathology. Yeah, I love it. So, so long story short, funny story, Rachel and I know each other from years and years ago in mobile fees land. And, you know, we've both sort of our, as our careers have evolved, which I, you know, I love talking about that on the podcast. I, you don't have to stay stuck doing something that no longer serves you. And I just, I love, I've loved watching Rachel's career and becoming an entrepreneur evolve. And I'm so excited to dive more into this today. So 
Rachel, tell the people who you are, if you don't mind. Yes, of course. I am Rachel Hatterberg-Walt. I am a speech pathologist. I graduated in 2007 uh, from undergrad at University of Kentucky and then graduate school at University of Kentucky and then primarily worked in acute care. I did some travel contracts and mobile fees. I've uh, worked with Carolina Speech Pathology doing mobile fees and doing continuing education and teaching and stuff for, I don't even know, like 10 years, I guess, at this point. I Then once I started having kids, I transitioned to PRN, acute care mostly. I did work at the Shirley Ryan Ability Lab in Chicago for a little bit doing inpatient rehab. But in speech pathology, dysphagia and acute care really take my heart. Um, and then I, I started getting pulled away from the profession once I started having kids and realized my own mental health needed to kind of take the priority. That role change really knocked me for a loop in who I am and what my career is because, you know, before children, I was like selling endo-HD equipment and teaching and working in acute care and just like felt really good about speech pathology. And then I had kids and, and took a PRN job instead and kind of stepped back and I was like, okay, now now what? What does this look like going forward? And so I started um, my company called Crafting Good. It started off as a subscription box company to do kindness crafts, just really putting a focus on kindness in the family, totally different than speech pathology, which kind of felt good at the time. I needed a little bit of a a refresh, a little bit of a different perspective, something super creative, less scientific. So that felt really good. And then I started realizing as I took it a, another acute care job here in Charlotte during January of 2020, which was a really great time to take yes. an acute care yes. job that, um, oh, I've totally neglected the self-kindness, self-compassion component into my company. And so COVID-19 really forced me to prioritize that part, self-compassion, self-kindness. I started meditating every day, started prioritizing getting outside every day, and it really helped me become a much better clinician and a much better parent, a much better person in all of my roles. During my time at that acute care job, actually during orientation, I was given this book called Compassionomics by the chaplain there that leads their um, Code Lavender program, which is a compassion program for practitioners. And I started reading the book and then I couldn't devour it fast enough. So I got it on Audible. And so then I just, you know, listened to it in all my free time. And then I went back to the paper copy version. And now I am like on a mission to get this information out there. So clinicians don't have to suffer with burnout symptoms and realize that their compassion that probably brought them into the profession is actually a really super useful um, and evidence-based clinical skill uh, that we can talk about today. So that was a lot, but <laughs> I love it. No, I love that. Thank you so That's much. Kind of the, the gist. Yeah, no, I, I, I love it. Yeah. So where should we start? I'm so excited to hear more about this book. So yeah, yeah, let's dive in. Well, yeah. So I was in training to do orientation for this new PRN job at the acute care uh, in Atrium here. And the chaplain, I started talking to the chaplain about, you know, the support they have for holistic care of practitioners and patients. I've always been a holistic minded person. I'm a holistic and integrative health coach as well. I also do Reiki. I am a founder of this compassion company, work with energetics and patients. So I'm always thinking about the mind, body, energy of a person. And I've always done this with my patients. 
But it was interesting to me that they made it a priority to support that energetic kind of spirit, mind, body connection with their practitioners and how that helps patients too. And they can help patients with that as well. It's called cold code lavender. So if you have a difficult patient experience, or if you lost a patient or had trouble with a coworker, you could tap into this code lavender and a chaplain or one of the people working for the initiative will come and do counseling with you, uh, give you mind, body, spirit support. And so when the chaplain gave me this book and just really talked about how impactful it was, I was just so excited to read more because that's always been such an ethos of mine to kind of look at the whole patient, a patient-centered approach. And I know we've heard that term so much, but when it's kind of shoved from the top in the leadership, like we have to be patient-centered, it's it kind of defeats the purpose of being patient-centered, right? Being patient-centered is being compassionate, is being an active listener, is thinking of the whole patient, thinking of their family dynamics. And so this kind of brought that back to life as a way of, oh, that's, you know, that's right. That's why I got into this profession. So these two doctors, um, Stephen Treshiak and Anthony Mazzarelli, were the two people that, that did the systematic literature review all about how... It's really the science of compassion that will help decrease cost, uh, prevent medical errors, kind of the antidote to this burnout culture that we're seeing in the general public, but especially in healthcare, and especially now after the COVID-19 pandemic really shook everything up for you know all of our roles in healthcare as clinicians, but also as parents and as caregivers outside of the hospital as well. I mean, these symptoms of burnout are being documented as widespread speech pathology, physicians, just overall healthcare, overall just workers. Mm-hmm. So the, they presented compassion as a tool that can be learned, doesn't take much time. The data they found, it only takes 40 seconds of a compassionate interaction with a patient or a patient's family member to be effective. And what's cool about compassion as a patient kind of tool is it helps us too. So it helps us with our symptoms of burnout. It helps us with our job satisfaction and with company culture as well and team culture. So it's the best bang for your buck. And it it doesn't take long. It can be learned. We know how plastic our brains are. And I think the misconception is that compassion is just something you're born with. You either have compassion or you don't. You have empathy or you don't. Um, And that's not true. They found that obviously with neuroplasticity that we can learn these skills if we pay attention to them and and develop them over even just six hours can change your brain of training yourself to work compassionately. So that is kind of the general overview, but maybe we should go into some of the symptoms of burnout so people can recognize that they're experiencing that or if coworkers are experiencing that. Maybe the definition of compassion as well, so we know exactly what we're talking about, and then um, different ways to bring compassion into a clinical setting. Yeah, yeah, perfect. Yeah, yeah. Let, let me back you up, and maybe you were planning to address this later, anyways. Yeah. But I think of you know, you you said something like it only takes forty seconds of having a compassionate conversation to sort of change the tra- trajectory. But I'm wondering, was did they use like a specific dialogue or was there anything that they, I guess if, for it to be a study, they have to have, you know, specific measurables. And I'm curious as to really how they had the clinicians perform compassion. Right. Well, they videotaped and watched interactions with physicians and saw that, you know, the patients rated that 
um, interaction as compassionate or not on a scale? And what are the things that really made them feel compassion as it uh, as a compassionate interaction? So some of those things I'm sure you can probably think of eye contact, um, having your body facing the patient, getting on their level, active listening. So all of those things go into active listening, repeating the patient. So all of those things that you might suspect are markers for a compassionate interaction, asking thoughtful questions, um, asking if they have any questions. Again, a lot of the interactions before they apply the intervention of the clinicians we're not compassionate at all. Um, I think one of the surveys said like 1% of interactions are actually rated as compassionate by the clinician and the patient. So this is a problem that clinicians are aware of that they could be more compassionate and the patients really feel as well. And the funny thing about that though is they also found that we think individually that we are compassionate. But it's kind of one of those things that's, you know, if you've ever done a food diary, you're like, I eat pretty healthy. Yeah, I eat pretty good, yeah, uh, you know? Yeah. And then you start recording what you're actually eating and you're like, oh, wait a second. Yeah. Maybe I'm not eating as cleanly as I thought. It's kind of the same thing. We personalize that we are compassionate because we don't want to think of ourselves as not compassionate, right? That's the alternative. Like nobody wants to identify as that. But when they started looking and, and videotaping these interactions between clinicians and patients, there were markers of our backs are turned because we're on the computer. We're really rushed. We're being interrupted. We're not listening to the patient at all because we're asking redundant questions. And those patients can feel that. Another interesting thing that they found about patients wanting compassion is that kindness and compassion is the most important thing they're looking for when they're looking for care. So even more than travel distance, even more than cost, they're looking for kind, compassionate, understanding clinicians. And so it's it's imperative, you know, for a revenue standpoint, uh, that we prioritize compassionate care, compassionate interactions with our patients. And it seems obvious that maybe we are compassionate, but we do have that bias that <laughs> maybe we think we're a little more compassionate than we are. And that's why it's important to speak to the burnout, because the burnout actually decreases compassion in clinicians. So that's why it's a really important piece to this whole puzzle. There's at least... Some of the data has been around 50% of speech pathologists in the data that they found have experienced symptoms of burnout. And so symptoms, of, and I'm sure it's more, <laughs> but it's hard to report those things. We don't want to think of ourselves as burned out on a profession we initially came in to with love, yes. right? We care a lot about our patients, but there's forces around us that make it really hard to not experience burnout, long hours, responsibilities, data, tracking, you know, documentation, all of that kind of stuff puts a lot of pressure on us to, and it, it makes us think of it as more of a job rather than a, a compassionate, you know, interaction with a patient every single time. But the symptoms of burnout are um, cynicism, anxiety, depression, depersonalization is one. And that is the one that really can turn the compassion off when we depersonalize our patients and our interactions, even with coworkers and things, it, it prevents compassion yeah. um, and it contributes to medical errors and to inappropriate tests being recommended and things like that, because we're looking at it more as a to-do list, you know, like a patient list as a to-do list rather than each person's patients and, and all of that that goes into it, their circumstances, their feelings about it, their mindset about their goals 
So that depersonalization part of the burnout list of symptoms is the real kicker there. But also stress, like very high stress, really constricts us. And when we're highly stressed, we have anxiety, we have depression, we're worried about all of these things. It's really hard to think of a person as a whole patient and come out with expansion and love rather than just that constriction worry about that. We also second guess ourselves if we're experiencing burnout, which can you know, be super impactful to our decision-making processes as far as instrumentals to recommend, therapeutic approaches to recommend, um, you know, diet recommendations and all of those things. If we're second guessing ourselves the whole time, we're just waffling out there. We're not really using our evidence-based practice because our mental health and our energy is so focused on our stress that it can negatively impact that compassionate care and patient care, obviously, as a result. Yeah. Well, thank you for sharing all of that. Yeah. And when we're talking about compassion, what we're talking about is feeling someone else's feelings, kind of like empathy, but then going to the next stage, which is to act, to act, to help relieve that suffering. So they found a little bit of difficulty when they were searching all the papers and stuff, because the definitions of compassion were all over the place. Um, And so they used terms that encompassed all of those things, empathy, compassion, care, all of those things. So um, that's what we're talking about. Just feeling another person's feelings isn't going to get us to where we want to go. We want to make sure that then we're moved to act and and be really focused and intentional about what that action is. And when you have that as a compassion rather than a to-do list, it's way more impactful, way more efficient. Awesome. Thank you. Yeah. Well, the definition of compassion is important. How compassion helps patient care for sure. And just overall, I mean, it helps clinicians, it helps patient care, it helps revenue, it helps decreased medical errors, and that it's it's a learned process. It's not just something that, you know, you either have or you don't. And you have to be intentional about it too. You have to want to put the effort in to be compassionate. And so those are some nuances that I think maybe we don't put as much weight on. We know, oh yeah, it's good to be compassionate, but when we kind of take the veil off and realize, you know, maybe I'm experiencing symptoms of burnout. Maybe I'm not taking care of my self-care, my mental health as much, and it's impacting how I show up in, in all of my roles unintended, unintentionally. But, you know, being more intentional about that and realizing, you know, oh, great, Rachel's telling us another thing to do during our treatment session um, feels really stressful. But when you realize that it's helping yourself feel good, it's helping your patients and their outcomes. Um, and it only takes 40 seconds of a compassionate interaction to get all of the benefits, like following through with treatment recommendations, following through with diet recommendations, because that compassionate relationship that you develop with your patients will incentivize them to do better um, patient self-care for themselves and take care of all of the things that we recommend because they trust us more because we're actually listening to them. So it seems like another to-do list, (laughs) another treatment goal, but it's really a powerful one and a really potent one that can benefit all of these different areas. I mean, leadership in the hospital systems and the nursing homes and company culture and the patient um, with their family even, you know? So it's important to know that, you know, it's like, oh, great. Now I have to be all compassionate, which is probably a sign that you're burned out if that's your response anyway. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, well, that's what I think of is, is like, I think of how many experiences have, have we all had both 
you know, working in healthcare, but then also being a patient ourselves. And, you know, it's just like, you know, sometimes you get a professional that comes in and and you're like, oh my gosh, why are they even in this profession? Or like, why are they even a helping professional when they just seem to have terrible bedside manner or seem to hate the job, you know, and, and then digging deeper now, you know, we all understand how stressful healthcare has been in the last few years. And, you know, is that a sign of burnout that, and I don't want to downplay this at all, that that can just be reversed with a few of these free tools, you know, and, and I, it, it could be a lot deeper than that. We don't know, but I think this is definitely worth a try and definitely the best thing for your buck for a free tool. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. When it brought to mind, I listened to your last podcast and you mentioned you were candid about an experience you had with a clinician that you were trying a strategy. It just wasn't working. And I'm, I was so curious because I'm like, Oh, I wonder if that was, if it could have been a more compassionate interaction where a clinician is really listening to you and your needs in a holistic way, asking very potent questions, giving you very practical strategies, if you could have found your solution sooner and easier. And that, you know, used a lot of your energy, a lot of your time, gave you a lot of doubt and and mental health stress as well, because you're thinking, oh my gosh, my mom, I can't, and I'm a speech pathologist, like, why can't I get this together? You know, if we infused an intentional, compassionate response there, some really potent questions, really active listening, you know, have the patient talk a little bit more. I'm curious if that would have helped alleviate some of that stress in your interaction as the patient, you know? Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, it definitely probably would have because I think, you know, I've beat myself up for years with, you know, navigating therapy for my son and just feeling like, you know, am I not doing enough? Is this you know, I was resistant to some things and it's like, is that a me thing? Or is this really just doesn't work for him? And, you know, I think I I say now, you know, we have the absolute dream team for my son and his therapist. And and I, I would wholeheartedly 100% say that all of them are so incredibly compassionate. There's not any of them that I couldn't say, you know, what I really felt about something to. And and I think, you know, that was a point I was going to make is that sort of the compassion piece leads to like an aspect of vulnerability, which builds trust and safety. And there's really, we're, we're having this, this sort of time right now where patients don't trust clinicians, patients don't trust doctors, patients don't trust healthcare professionals. And I think this is a really important first step, a really critical tool to rebuilding that trust. Yes. Yes. And that... Uh... Part of that cultivating compassion too, I wanted to speak to is the mindfulness part, because that is a tool that enhances compassion. And if you're not familiar with mindfulness, there's lots of research out there on just general benefits for any human being. (laughs) It decreases a lot of physiological symptoms, psychological symptoms, pain, I mean, in blood pressure, heart rate, diabetes, you know, blood sugar, all of these things can be helped with the use of mindfulness strategies. And so, um, you know, deep breathing, being grounded in the present moment. So finding things that you see and that you touch and that you hear and that you smell, touching your heart, put your hand over your chest and just feeling your body. I'm in my body. I'm right here. Because I, you know, remember during a really many really busy acute care days where I'm chasing patients and then, oh, I have to remind to go back to them. And then and blah, blah, blah. I didn't even go to the bathroom all day. You know, (laughs) it's like the body will scream at you until you notice it. So even just a hand on the heart on the way to the next patient, taking a good deep breath, putting your hand on your belly to feel your diaphragm expanding and getting 
really good oxygen can help ground you in the moment. So your brain is not scattering all over the hospital while you're with a patient. So it's that mindfulness piece that I'm really passionate about growing that empathy and, and compassion factor during, during the strategies with patient or with clinicians. But then it would be even interesting um, to practice it with your patients that have had a really hard time with a strategy and like, okay, let's just take a deep breath. <laughs> let's just get to this present moment. Um, take a deep breath. And as we experienced, you know, before on this call, it just helps connect you energetically and, and with those feelings and with those trusts of, you know, I'm here to hold space for you too. Yes, I'm here to improve your swallowing, whatever our goals are, but I'm, I also care about you and how you're doing is super powerful. Yeah. I think, and that was one of the things that I always talked about that I loved so much about doing mobile fees was that we were sort of on our own time. You know, we didn't, we didn't have to be in and out in, you know, how many minutes and we did, you know, I just, that was one thing I loved so much because I, I felt like it was okay for me to take a few minutes and really establish rapport with a patient. And, yeah. you know, I'm obviously about to stick a camera up your nose. I need to establish some sort of rapport. And, <laughs> I was and- just about to say the rapport, compassion, energetic connection piece to mobile fees is what three fourths of it, yeah. honestly, because yeah. if you can't quickly establish a trusting environment for that test, you're not going to get the test yes. done. Yes. And that is the biggest thing that I am a cheerleader for when I'm doing training courses for fees participants that are new clinicians and that are freaking out about scoping. I'm like, look, the best thing you can do for yourself is calm your body down, get confidence yourself, be self-compassionate yourself. So you can infuse that to your patients because that is going to be your golden nugget, <laughs> your magic ticket to get a really good fees done. So, I mean, a hundred percent. I love that you said that because I've always, yeah. I've said that so many times. And, you know, I think I always was surprised. Like I'd have, you know, a few patients that would say, you know, oh my gosh, you're the first person that's really, truly, you know, stopped and asked me these questions or like really, truly seemed like you cared. And part of me is just like, I didn't really, all I did was just sort of ask how they're doing. You know, I didn't feel like I did anything outrageous, you know, other than just asking them questions and establishing rapport. But like you said, it really only takes 40 seconds to do that. And I think just asking these questions and 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 giving them a space to say how they're feeling and giving them a safe container to express themselves in is is can mean so much. Well, and you know the difference between, hey, how are you doing today? I'm going to stick this thing in your yep. nose, blah, blah, versus, hey. Yep. <laughs> How are you doing? I know this is, you know, a little bit nerve wracking. You are safe here. Like you can talk to me the whole time. I mean, you know, the difference between energetic, energetically, the difference between a really warm, how are you doing? And a, Hey, how are you doing? I'm going to do blah, 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 blah. It's like, whoa, I didn't even answer you. And you're onto your spiel. Like <laughs> back it up, man. And this page is so personal. You know, I think. We, we do talk about that some, but I don't know if we give it the weight it probably deserves. I mean, this is someone's love if they were a chef and now they have dysphagia and they can't really cook for their family because it's too painful. I mean, that is so personal. And if we can understand that part of it, you know, I know how much it means to you to sit at the table with your family over Thanksgiving coming up. You know, we're going to work so hard to be able to make that a functional 
you know, goal for you and, and make that a pleasurable experience and an exciting experience for you. I mean, the difference between that and, okay, I'm going to throw this NMES on you and we're going to do a fees later. It's like (laughs) totally different. So it, it matters. And what I think is cool about this Compassionomics book is the data is there to support it, to be able to prioritize it, not just say, oh yeah, it's nice to have time to have a conversation. That's nice. But it's like, no, this is a clinical skill that you need to develop and prioritize so you can get the best clinical outcomes for your patients and save money for your hospital and <laughs> increase revenue for your hospital, improve team dynamics, because you know you can tell when there's been a scuffle on someone's floor and then they come in and give you care and you're like, oh God. Yeah. <laughs> So, you know, if we can even improve that with intentional compassion, that will benefit patients. So that's what I really like about this. You know, it's like I had the inkling like, yeah, compassion is really good, but the data to support it is so powerful. I I love all this. It was actually just a few days ago and I had a friend that was asking me to help help her find a a doctor. It it was like an ENT that that she needed. And, you know, she's like, I have a few names. Do you know, you know, and, and I was like, well, let me just tell you, like some ENT specialize in ears, some specialize in sinus, some specialize in throat. Like we got to find one that's the right specialty for you. So anyway, so I was helping her do some research. The overwhelming result was this one doctor that came up that had like 97 reviews, like all five-star reviews. And like everybody else just had a handful. The reviews were all over the place. And I was like, huh, why is this guy so good? And so I clicked on the reviews. Every single review was about like, he actually sat down and took the time to really understand my problem, asked how my day was. And it was interesting because even some of the reviews were like, he took, you know, two minutes of his time, you know, like it wasn't a ton of time, but what was so interesting and what I was so infatuated with was how this created this culture and this fostered this trust with this doctor that this was the guy to go to because he was going to actually listen to you you know, his, who knows what his surgical technique was and who knows that some of these other guys may have had a better technique. I don't know, but this, so many people wanted to go to this doctor because of his compassion and just building trust and establishing rapport. And I just found that so fascinating. Well, and it sounds like he's very intentional about it too. It's not some afterthought. It's like, no, this is part of my bread and butter. This is my magic secret ingredient of how I get the best outcomes for my patients is I am intentionally going to spend two minutes with you. So you can talk to me about this. It's funny, funny, you mentioned like the clinical skill though, too. They did, they did talk about in this book, like compassion can't like slap a bandaid over like crappy clinical skill. Like mm-hmm. you still have to show up. Like, yes. Um, yes. So it's not like, Oh, well, I'm really nice, but I don't know anything. I have no clue what I'm doing. Like that's not it, <laughs> but it's also going to help you in that regard to getting better and being compassionate with yourself and all of that kind of thing. But yeah, I mean, it, it makes a difference. And I'm sure that doctor is bringing tons of revenue in you know, and I'm sure the leadership is looking at him like, oh, okay, what's this dude got going on? And as we know, I mean, with, with all the, you know, surveys that come in, you want a high patient satisfaction survey and compassion is such an easy, quick way to get those results that, that bring you more money and and bring you more flexibility as a facility and all that kind of stuff. So yeah, it's more than just a nice to have. It's a, it's a critical component, um, an intentional part 
of clinical care and goals. Yep. Awesome. All right. Let's dive in. Can we dive into sort of the actual strategy behind compassion? Sure. Like the active listening and things or the mindfulness part of it? Uh, Either one. Well, they go hand in hand. So um, as we talked kind of offhand about, there's a difference between asking questions and, you know, rattling off recommendations and listening fully to the person. So a couple of key factors there is that your body, your body um, communication is on point for compassion. So if that's, if it's appropriate, if that's a hand on the shoulder or holding a hand of a patient or, um, you know, I making eye contact and keeping eye contact, making it an intentional practice to eliminate distractions. They found that I think it was like 11 seconds. They weren't, the clinician wasn't even in the session 11 seconds without an interruption and a distraction. Well, that just kills the trust of a patient. Like if they're coming in here every five seconds asking you questions or getting verification or whatever, or if your buzzer's going off on your cell phone or your computer's beeping, all of those things really decrease the compassion uh, quota of the interaction there. So being intentional about limiting those distractions, eye contact, body focus to the patient, those are critical components. And just all of those active listening things. So nodding your head, I mean, actually listening, not just, you know, you're about to throw up all of your recommendations, no matter what they say, but being fluid with that being in, you know, intuitive about that. Because we've all heard like, and we've probably all experienced the patient, like, I just have a gut that we need to do a fees on this person. Nothing clinically really just telling me that, but I, I just have a gut feeling. Maybe it was something they said. Maybe it was the um, intonation of their voice or a question that their caregiver asked. And then you do a fees and you, you know, might even discover cancer or polyp or something like that. When we're burned out and stressed and not using compassion as a strategy, we're going to miss all that. Yeah. Yeah. So it's just really bringing and talking about mindfulness as the antidote. That's mindfulness. Putting your intentional attention on something is bringing mindfulness to the interaction. So um, it's being focused limiting distractions, making sure that your body is calm so you can bring that energy and hold that energy with your patient. So that decreases their nerves. You know, we all know that the patient sometimes, especially if it's a a session where something traumatic is going to be talked about, or if you are going to give the results of a really difficult fees or end of life decisions, you know, they don't even hear it. (laughs) Their trauma response happens. They can't even hear our recommendations and the results. So your body language your compassionate interaction can really help that as well. So I understand this is really difficult. This is not what either of us expected. These are the facts of this. Let me know how you're doing. This might be difficult. If you need to take a break, let me know. We can take a deep breath. Um, Just being really hand-holding and and caring, especially in those intense sessions that SLPs get involved in, especially with end-of-life decisions, it's critical. It's critical because they they have some anecdotal... um, you know, stories and stuff in the Compassionomics book as well to bring all this to life where a doctor or a clinician nurse maybe will just come in and and like blurt the results that the patient hadn't known yet. And that's, I've experienced that as well. Like, oh my gosh, they didn't even know that we were recommending a peg yet. Like, oh, (laughs) you know, Um, and those things really matter because it just, it slashes trust. It slashes literal listening and hearing recommendations. And it under, it undermines our clinical knowledge because the the method at which it's delivered matters so much. Yeah. I'm being like flooded with flashbacks of just 
really positive and really negative interactions. Yeah. yeah. I, I always say that, and I will forever be so grateful to this, the neonatologist that took care of my son when he was in the NICU mm. because of the way that she delivered all of the information to us. Like she would take me into this separate room that had, you know, like a comfy couch. And she's like, let's just sit down. You know, I've got a lot to tell you, but I want to be here to answer anything you have. And just the way that like her approach and the way she delivered information, but she always would just say something and be like, you know, what are your thoughts? Like, you know, I don't know which is the way to go. Like, I want you to decide, but I'm here to support you. And so it was such, it was just the best sort of team decision-making, you know? And I also remember having a doctor a few years later that came in and delivered some really bad medical news to me. And she just came in and said it. And I was just like, I just remember starting sobbing and she's like, Oh, is this new to you? Have you not heard this before? And I was like, what? And like, I just ran out of the room. Like I ran out, I grabbed my stuff and ran out. Like I never even asked any. So I got home to my husband and I was like flooded with questions. And he's like, why didn't you ask? And I was like, I couldn't like, there was, uh, this was not the woman I was going to ask questions to, you know? No, I mean, it traumatized you, Yeah, you know, and, and it happens to our patients' families as well. You know, if something's going on with a patient in ICU and you step out and you're not as compassionate as with the interaction with the you know patient's family, then that's going on with the patient's family. And then the patient's family is not going to follow through with the recommendations and it's going to be this drawn out process and things. So it, it makes a huge difference. And you probably didn't even hear anything else she no. had to say because of the initial news, you know, <laughs> and being so crass and you're like, oh my gosh, like get me out of here. I, I can't even listen to you much less understand the results and then be able to follow through with them. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. So, so I think what I, what I'm having trouble reconciling here, Rachel, that I know you can clarify is sort of, okay, we have an SLP that's just feeling so burnt out and they're like, okay, I'm listening to this and it's all well and good that you guys think if I just all of a sudden turn on the compassion, <laughs> I'm not going to be burned out anymore. Right. <laughs> so yeah, I love for you to, obviously. Yeah. <laughs> so I'd love for you to sort of help break that down for us. Exactly. Exactly. Well, it's like when someone says, well, just do self-care and yes. you're fine. It's yeah. like, oh, just go get a massage and your life will be just, great. Yeah. Take yeah. a bubble bath, baby. <laughs> um, yeah, no, obviously depending on the level of burnout, there needs to be certain strategies. Obviously, if you're really burned out, you need to seek mental health support, counseling, medications, whatever is right for you. Enlist all of your support systems around you. Uh, if that's coworkers, if that's a boss, if that's a babysitter or a clinic, you know, a caregiver at home that can help enable you to take care of yourself and have some time. But I would highly recommend these mindfulness techniques like meditation or stillness and silence, yoga, you know, going out in nature, some things that you can infuse even in your day that can be really easy. It's not going to be a fix. Like you still have to, depending on your level of burnout, address things at the core you know, with mental health support and whatever that looks like to you and whatever, you know, would be appropriate for you at that level. But even going and sitting outside for lunch will help some of this burnout stress and give you some space, some fresh air, some vitamin D. Um, Seeing nature has really been shown to decrease some stress symptoms, looking at nature, even on your computer. Like even if you're in New York City and it's, you know, a concrete jungle, even just pulling out, you're eating at your desk, you're really stressed, you got 10 minutes to eat. If you put up one of your like happy places in nature on your screen, it's shown to decrease some of these symptoms of burnout. 
That's so funny. I go, so my dermatologist that I went to, so I had like a four inch melanoma removed from my neck last year. Oh, did you really? It was horrible. I think I've talked about this before, but I go in the office to remove it and I'm frantic. Like she was like, we got to get you in today. I got to get this off you. And I sit in the chair and there's like these TV screens of like Bora Bora and like all this, just like see. And I was like, oh my God, this is so blissful. Right. She's like cutting, you know, 40, like ended up putting like 40 stitches in my neck. And I was like, oh my, she's like, how are you doing? I'm like, I am loving Bora Bora. Thank you right. so much. <laughs> Bring me all the Bora Bora. Well, it does um, because that is a mindfulness focused task. So if you can, you know, even doing deep breathing, like we did earlier, where you just focus on the breath in and out will help decrease some of those symptoms of stress and burnout getting a therapist, obviously, or a coach. I do one-on-one coaching for well-being and I work with people that feel burned out and need some tactical hands-on one-on-one support with that. And there's all sorts of energetic and, you know, integrative mind-body strategies that really show to help too. But grounding in the present moment really helps. Like even taking your shoes off and walking in grass can help you. So really approachable things that you can do with not so much time on your hands. But again, yeah, like compassion is not going to just fix everything in your life. <laughs> um, do you have much experience with hypnotherapy? Yes. Rachel? Yeah. Yes. And that is really helpful because what that does is it takes you to your subconscious where basically you're behaving from. All of us are just running around behaving from our subconscious. And if we've grown up with any trauma at all, or, um, you know, the circumstances around us or our cultural problems like racism and, and patriarchal issues and all that sort of thing, we, it affects us and how we behave from a subconscious level. And so hypnosis can really help weed through that, um, weed through limiting beliefs and improve self-compassion. So if all of this sounds like gobbledygook and it's a little woo for you, if you can just put your hand on your heart and just say, you know, I'm doing the best I can. Yep. I'm just doing the best I can. And finding any little moment during your day doing that can help set you on a trajectory for real healing and recovery and to to be able to access that compassion for your for your clinicians and patients again. Yeah, I mean it it really just does depend on your level of burnout as far as how much support you might need to be able to access this compassion because like I was talking about earlier when you are burned out, when you are stressed and you have anxiety and you have depression and you're depersonalizing things, you're pretty burned out. And so, you know, taking a deep breath every once in a while ain't going to do it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so really swallowing your pride and <laughs> accessing the programs available to you in your facilities as well. If your company has a wellness program to really use, use that, um, it's there for you, you know, talk to the chaplain at the hospital, if that's available to you, ask about Code Lavender because my hospital system was not the only hospital system that that uses that compassion-based approach to um, taking care of their clinicians. So accessing the free and available support that's there for you and definitely mental health, but also just compassion is an energy. It's, it's an emotion. It's an energetic. So tackling this with a mind-body integrative approach I think, of course, is a really effective way to help combat the symptoms of burnout. Yeah. Awesome. I love this. I could not love this anymore, Rachel. So. Oh, good. I'm so glad. Me too. That's why I'm like so annoying about blabbering about it. No, it's it's just so needed. And I think, 
you know, I, I, we joke, you know, swallow your pride and ask for help. I, I know that's the hardest thing to do. And it also just, I, for the longest time I was the same way. And I think it just sort of seems like I've got 90 million things going on. The last thing I need to do is like do some woo woo mindfulness, you know, exactly. and I was so resistant to it for so long. And then I finally, I had enough people that I trust in my inner circle, you know, mentors, coaches, things like that, that were like, Tracy, you have to just get some help in this area. Yeah. Cause how effective are we? If we, if we're so burned out. Yeah. <laughs> and now it's really something that I'm like selfish about. I don't like to use that word, but I cannot function. Yes. So <laughs> thank you. Yeah. I'm a, yeah. I'm not a good business owner. I'm not a good mom. I'm not a good wife. If I don't, utilize these tools frequently. And I know if I'm getting all crazy, frazzled, life's insane, I, I know I have a toolbox to go back to. And I think that's, oh, like, and that's it. Yeah. 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 That's, that's it. And it's funny because it's the necessary key component to be the clinician you want to be, to have the productivity you want to have, because when you're stressed and you're burned out and you're not taking care of yourself, you're not going to be as productive. You're not going to be a good clinician. So if you prioritize this, you get what you want. But it is, it's that part of you have to, you have to prioritize it. And I don't want clinicians out there to get burned out or to get to rock bottom before they turn to helping themselves because it doesn't have to be that way. But I was the same way. I mean, I, when the stress and anxiety of, of COVID and not knowing COVID, I think was so hard. It's like, is it everywhere? Am I bringing it home to my kids every day? Like, what is this? Um, and I turned to meditation every day. And, and sometimes I wouldn't technically do a meditation. I would just sit and stare at the wall. And I, what was so impactful was the boundary setting with that was I told my husband who was at home with our three very small children all day while I was at the hospital, like when I get home, Nobody speaks to me. Nobody talks to me. Nobody asks me anything for an hour. I'm going to go take a shower. I'm going to get clean clothes on and I'm going to sit by myself and recharge and kind of cope with what happened during the day. And I prioritize that and I set that boundary. And that is what really helped me flourish in all of those roles. And what's cool about mindfulness too is you know, it's not some plateau. We don't we don't get to some point where we're like, oh, I'm so enlightened and mindful and and compassionate that I don't ever have to really be intentional about it. It's not a plateau. It's not, you know, a summit of a mountain. It's tools that you can use as these balancing acts and just riding the waves of stress. So when you do have a hard patient or you do lose a patient or you have a difficult interaction with a coworker that you can always turn to, like you said, tools in your toolbox to help stabilize and get you back to that state that you want to be in that calm and compassionate and insightful clinician you want to be. Yep. I love it. Any final thoughts, Rachel? I think, I think we covered everything, but yeah, yeah I feel like I probably blabbered a lot, but okay. yeah. Um, I'm just really grateful for you having me here and sharing this information with people because I really think it can make a big impact into their job satisfaction and, and patient care. So yeah, I love it. Thank you so much, Rachel. You're so welcome. Thank you. And that's a wrap for this episode. As always, thank you so much for listening. And if you'd like to download the show notes from this episode, please visit swallowyourpridepodcast.com. There you can also sign up for our email list so that you'll never miss another episode. If you do like what you hear, then please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes. 
or share it on social media with your friends and colleagues because that is what keeps these episodes coming. If you'd like to be a guest, share feedback, or request a topic to be discussed on the show, please email podcast at teresarichard.com. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll catch you next week.